We are um, on a standalone uh, sermon today in the book of Acts. I'm going to read the passage for you today. I do not know what the number is on the black Bibles. But do, uh, so you know, if you need a Bible, there are Bibles over there that you can grab. Take one. If you don't have a Bible, take it. It is yours. You can keep it. Which number is 914? Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. We're going to read verses 1 through 7. Here's the word of God. Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Acanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Let's pray. God, this is your holy, inerrant word. We stand before it with awe, but we do not just see it as a transcendent thing, but an imminent thing, meaning that you want us to come and get close with it. We are going to go swimming in the text, swimming that we may know you, what your will is, what you would have for us. God, we are a church that lives by your word. And we are going to take some steps in the next couple of months to do so to an even greater degree. And so I pray that you would help us. May this be the first uh, point of that. That we would know your word, that it would sit in our hearts, and that we would long and live to fulfill it, to live it out. We will not do so apart from the work of your spirit. And so, oh Holy Spirit, come, guide us, open our eyes, make us happy today. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you do not know, about 14 years ago, this church, Grace Point Community Church, was in infancy. And by infancy, I mean it was just an idea. Grace Chapel in Lexington, a big church down in Lexington, set out to plant a church in the Merrimack Valley. They didn't know who the pastor was going to be or what the name was going to be, but they said, we believe that a church needs to come here in Andover, North Andover, somewhere in the Merrimack Valley. People need to know the name of Jesus, the gospel, and there are not enough churches doing it there. And so they set out to plant a church. And then two years later, after a lot of planning and work on Palm Sunday in 2006, this church, named Grace Point Community Church, began to worship weekly together. We have been on a mission ever since to see many come to Jesus Christ, to grow together in the grace and knowledge of Jesus, and to plant our roots deeply into the ground so that we stand strong for this generation of believers and the next and the next after that. If you do, maybe, maybe you don't know, planting a church is harrowing, difficult work. But it has been unbelievably rewarding at the same time because we have gotten to see God work. When you plant a church, 
you better be good at putting your trust in the Lord because He will make you do it in the end. You must rely on His grace and on His provision. This church is not a business. No church is a business. So there is no foolproof plan to make a church work. We can do all the work that we we can and God still must do the growing. God must bring and hold the church together. My greatest joy has been to see God work in ways that I did not think that he would work. To see him care for us and provide for us time after time after time. And so we rely on him. Now we rely on him though knowing that we cannot just throw wisdom and action out the window. We are called to live by faith and do church to the best of our abilities. And so the reason that I'm talking about this this morning is that there are important steps that we must take as a church to root it deeply, to ensure that we remain committed to the gospel and to each other. If we want to have a healthy, thriving church, we must make important decisions together. And one of those decisions we are going to launch this morning. We come to one this morning. In 2008, the church was incorporated and we incorporated our first bylaws. The bylaws, these governmental documents, would give shape and boundary to our church. Well, 10 years later, the elders, by God's grace, would like to propose some new changes. Changes that we believe are in accordance with God's Word. Changes that we think will address some important issues that we face. And so we begin to process it this morning by not looking at ourselves, but looking at the history of the church and God's Word, and looking at these things that we call now elders and deacons. So look at Acts 6.1 with me. Acts 6.1, what does it say? Now in these days... When the disciples were increasing in number. Okay, stop there. Disciples increasing in number. Randy Alcorn likes to think that heaven, we will be able, when we go to heaven, we'll be able to come back to the earth, or at least go back in time and witness the most amazing things that happen on the planet. We will go back and it will be as though we are there to see some of the incredible workings of God. I, I, I think this would be my first stop. To see the church, the Christian church, alive, rippling with excitement and power, growing in ways a religion never had or ever since has has begun growing. We said it last week that every kind of person was coming to Christ at the preaching of the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus' people understood was not just another guru, but the risen God of the world. And if you believed in Him... You too could be raised. Death would be put away and you would live forever. And they heard this preaching and they said, sign me up. And the church grew and grew and grew. Now we need to make a distinction. To follow Jesus in the church meant that you joined with the church. And what I mean is that you became part of it and it became part of of you. So it's not like becoming a, a fan of the Red Sox, where yes, you join with other Red Sox fans once in a while, but you could also experience on your own. No, when you followed Jesus and joined his church, you became part of his body, part of a family. So you can imagine that this time, as this is happening, all these people are coming together in excitement and joy in this new family of God. 
there were also going to be growing pains, issues. There was no manual on how to run a Christian church, so of course issues would arise. But I think the most important point is that there were a few moments in that early church where the issues were were not just your garden variety issues, but they were threats, threats to the church and to the gospel itself. And I want you to see three here this morning. First, there was a threat to living out the gospel, to living out the gospel. Acts 6, 1 again. Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Okay, so step back. Who was leading the church at this time? The apostles. The 12 apostles. And they are trying to do it all. Preach, teach, pray, administrate. And as we see here, there is a desire to care for the poor. They had a time in the week set apart so that people could come eat, perhaps get some clothing. It was a big soup kitchen. And this was vitally important to them. First, just practically important. If you were truly poor in that time, if you were a widow or orphan, it was conceivable that you could starve to death. If others did not take care of you, you could die. These people were coming together. They were seeing them, many poor. And without their help, they could die. So it was important practically. It was also important historically and biblically. These apostles knew that throughout Israel's history, God made it clear that His heart was for the poor, for the widows and the orphans. He loved for, He cared for those who could not care for themselves. And so this would, of course, continue in the mission of the church. So these apostles standing over this place, over these people coming together to form a family, and there were growing pains. Even though the apostles, I think, meant well, they were failing to care for everyone. So something was blocking their ability to do it. What was it? So it says that the Hellenists were not happy. See that there? A complaint rose by the Hellenists. So the Hellenists were the Jews who lived outside of Palestine, and that meant that their primary language was Greek. Now, everyone at some level spoke Greek, but but the apostles would have been more Hebrew speakers. They would have spoken Hebrew. And so they were human. As they were trying to meet all the needs of all these people, you can imagine that their attention was taken to those people who could speak the same language as them. It was just easier. It was simpler for them to focus on those who spoke the same language as they did, to communicate with them. And so even in their altruism, even though they wanted to serve the whole church body, they were falling short. And so the first problem is clear. The first threat is clear. The church was failing to meet the physical needs of the body. And this was a threat why? Well, for the church to be a strong church, an interconnected light upon the hill could not let people fall through the cracks. The gospel, they realized, was a clarion call to live for the other, the brother, the sister, to give your life in service to your Christian friends and family. What did Jesus say? He said this, by, all, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love 
for one another. You can't just say it. You must live it out. So what would they do? How would they care for all these people? That was a threat. Second, there was a threat to preaching the gospel, to preaching the gospel. Verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now, I just want you to imagine the pressure that the apostles were under. Thousands of people coming to Christ. A melting pot of languages and cultures and tax brackets. Pressure, persecution from Rome, and the immense and growing needs of the sick, the poor, the orphaned, and the widows. And they're standing before this going, I don't know what we are going to do. We are going to have to make a decision. The only way that we will be able to serve all these people will be to give up. We will have to give up preaching the word of God. And maybe they thought this was a possibility. Maybe they had internal conversations. Maybe they could just back off now. Maybe they could stop preaching. The church was gathering together now. It took time and energy to teach, to study, to preach God's Word. Maybe they could just get to the real work of ministry. But they knew immediately that this would have been a colossal mistake. The Word of God was what brought life and grace and power. The Word of God was what rescued people from eternal death and brought many into relationship with the Lord. The Word of God was what taught them and gave them the power to serve others to begin with. There was no service apart from gospel preaching. This was a threat. What would they do? Third, there was a threat to gospel unity. Gospel unity. Remember the Hellenists, the Greek-speaking Jews, were angry, frustrated with the Hebrew-speaking leaders. And I think that what's happening here is that the apostles know that they cannot go any further because they sense that division is coming. Separation is a strong possibility. Maybe they were hearing things like, if you cannot take care of everyone, if you are going to underserve and exclude a whole category of people, we will be forced to leave. Maybe they didn't say it, but they could feel it. They could see the writing on the wall. Remember, the apostles wanted to care for everyone, but they were not physically able to do it. But that didn't matter. Unity was still being threatened. And that was a huge problem because unity in the church is one of the hallmarks of the gospel. 1 Peter 3.8 Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Ephesians 4.4 There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Gospel unity had to be maintained at all costs. What would they do? Three threats. Threats to gospel service, gospel preaching, and gospel unity. How would they address it? And I ask that to you not just because it's a, an interesting historical, biblical teaching. It's not just a historical lesson. It is a practical one. 
a practical reality, and it is one that our church faces. How will we address this same problem? To be completely blunt with you, we are an Acts 5 church, not an Acts 6 one. And what I mean is that our church is structured like the church was before they ever encountered this problem. But after a solid 12 years of ministry, it has become clear that we cannot continue this way. The elders have done their best to do it all. But our best clearly is not good enough. It is time that we adopt the same solution that the church did thousands of years ago. And so we ask now, what was the solution? Look at verse 2 again. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Now verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. That therefore is so important. Their solution in the end was simple. It was elegant. If we've got two things to cover, spiritual needs, physical needs, then we will have two distinct bodies to cover it. Those who would serve the word and those who would serve tables. Some would preach. Someone would meet physical needs. It was as simple as that. So when I took over as lead pastor a couple of years ago, I knew that our bylaws only allowed for one formal office, and we call it elder. And so that meant that we had to cover both responsibilities. Now, I didn't think it was super smart to right out of the gate go do some bylaw changing. And so we did the best that we could. And so what we did at the beginning, and we continue to do to this day, is that we have two meetings a month. The first meeting we call soul care where we would talk about the needs of our body, the needs of our members who needed specific care. How are we preaching? What are we doing to disciple the people? And then the second meeting, we called church care, where we would discuss all the church business, all the physical needs of the body, like finances and facilities and benevolence. Now, it was a pretty good system. But listen, the problem is that no matter the size of your church, if you must perform both roles, physical care and spiritual care, you will never do both things well. And often we found that one thing, as we focus on the other, fell, the other one fell by the wayside. And very often you will elect people to serve in roles that they are not called to. Sometimes people will only be called to be a deacon, not an elder, or vice versa. This story in Acts 6 is a story how these two roles were created to do this vital work of this gospel, this gospel that we love and live by. They were interconnected roles, two sides of the same coin. This is how the church would be constructed. And later, the names would come in elder and deacon. The one who served God's word would be called an elder. The one who served the physical needs would be called a deacon. So let's do each of those. Let's talk about each of them. What is an elder? The word elder does not just mean mature in age. It doesn't even need to mean mature in age. But mature in wisdom and godliness. And it is clear that they are to function as the spiritual leaders of the church. Now there are several words in the New Testament that refer to this role you see one as bishop, another as overseer, pastor, shepherd. These are, all inter, these are all interrelated. They're all the same thing. 
They mean to be the spiritual leader of a church body. This person will serve alongside the other elders to guide and guard, teach and build up, disciple and discipline, model and hold accountable. But I love Acts 6 because it narrows down what they do, filters down exactly what they do. The elder is mainly to teach the Word of God and to pray. They are not mainly to serve tables, though they can. But if it is to the exclusion of preaching the Word of God and praying for the people, they are doing something wrong. They are, their time should be, to be devoted to the physical I'm sorry, to the spiritual care of their people. So in reworking our bylaws, the new statement for our elders reads this way. The elders shall be the spiritual guardians of the church, its teachings and doctrine, and be responsible, this is new, for the spiritual care, development, and protection of our church. And it says this. The elders shall teach the church, pray for the church, and assure the management of the activities of the church on behalf of of the members. Okay, who should that person be? How should an elder be selected? Should they be the greatest communicators? Should they be the best leaders, the best business people? The way that you discern an elder is not primarily by gifting, but by character. That is Paul's primary point in 1 Timothy 3, 1 through 7. The most important thing for an elder is that they have exemplary godly character. D.A. Carson said this once, the list of qualifications for an elder in 1 Timothy 3 is remarkable for being unremarkable. In other words, there is nothing about superior IQ, charisma, powerful personality, or the like. The Christian minister is supposed to be gentle, not supposed to get drunk, and so forth. This list is remarkable for being unremarkable. Elders are mature, godly disciples who preach and who pray, who preach and who pray. Okay, what about deacons? What about deacons? The word deacon comes from the word, the Greek word diakonos, diakonos, and it means literally to serve, to serve. And we've said something so far about this, but their role is to meet the church's physical needs. In the early church, it meant meeting the needs of the poor to do mercy ministry. But that has expanded throughout the history of the church, and now deacons cover all physical aspects of church life. Here is how our new bylaw reads. It's brand new for us. Deacons will engage in activities that free up the elders to oversee, teach, and pray. According to Acts 6, 1 through 6, under the leadership of the elders, they will assist in the care and leadership of the church by providing physical support in key areas of ministry. So on the one hand, what deacons will actually do depends on the needs of our body. It will change. It will shift. On the other hand, we do think that, uh, in large part, some key roles will be filled right away. For example, mercy ministry. Mercy ministry. This means that our deacons will be at the cutting edge of making sure that our people are okay. Who needs financial support? Who needs food? Who needs to have their lawn mowed because they can't do it or their car fixed because they can't afford it? Who needs help finding work? Our deacons will care for those who physically need it. Financial ministry. Right now, our elders spend months putting our budget together. Months. And then beyond that, hours and hours just talking about our finances. With deacons, that whole thing gets shifted over to the deacons, from the elders 
to the deacons, and so they will oversee the budget. They will work closely with our treasurer. They will set a budget for the next year. Now, the elders ultimately will vote on that and then pass it on you to vote on it. But the majority of the work will be done by a deacon. So mercy ministry, financial ministry. We also hope to have a facilities ministry deacon. So we own our own building now. Now let me tell you, we could spend, our elders could spend all of our time addressing building issues. And so for the elders to keep their eye on the ball, we need deacons to make sure that our facility is well cared for. Now who should deacons be? How should they be chosen? In the same way as elders. They must have exemplary character. Acts 6.4 says the apostles called men of good repute to be chosen. 1 Timothy 3.8-12 says that Paul calls for those who have high integrity and character to be chosen. That's good. So our deacons should just be like our elders. They are chosen not mainly for their gifting, but mainly for who they are. Are they godly? Are they wise? Now, there is one thing that I think that we need to think about when, we, when we're talking about deacons. I want you to think of deacons as shock absorbers. You know what a shock is in a car? It allows you to travel over the road, over bumps, and not feel those bumps as much. Deacons will be our shock absorbers. Remember what we said about gospel unity, that they added this role to keep the church together. And so I believe that deacons are called by their ability to keep the peace, to build unity, to foster love. Yes, deacons should have some administrative skill, but it is far more important that they be godly, wise, and loving people who are good at making peace. Deacons provide physical support in the church to free up the elders to preach and teach. It is, it is as simple as that. Or to use the language in Acts 6, Deacons serve tables. Elders serve the Word of God. It is a beautiful picture of the gospel, the preaching of the Word, the serving of the souls, all for the sake of gospel unity. I want that for this church. This week, God willing, we will send you three things in an email. Number one, our current bylaws, the, the, the bylaws that we are under right now. Number two, a set of new bylaws with proposed changes and additions. And then three, an explanation of all of the changes that we're proposing. And just so you know, the three main ones, the ones that you need to be particularly aware of, are going to be put at the top so you can see them. But please read through the whole document. In two weeks, don't hold me to this, but I think in two weeks we will meet together as a church body, especially the members so that you can ask questions, so that you can offer comments. We want to give people as much opportunity to talk through these changes before we vote. If we need to change something, we want to make sure that we are doing it in cooperation with you. And then in about a month, two weeks after that, we will come together as a church to vote. And then if all of that goes well, finally in a few more months, we will come before you with a slate of deacon candidates, hopefully three. So let me finish by saying this last thing. There was only one man who served us both physically and spiritually, and he did it perfectly. He was the word that came into the world. He was the word that died on the cross and rose to new life so that we might be raised to life physically and spiritually. 
And now Jesus Christ is the head of the church. He has brought us together by his blood and he's making us into a building that will stand strong to do his work in the world. We come to these problems, these issues, these threats, and we tackle them by his grace for his glory, for the salvation of the lost and for our joy. And so I pray with you, alongside of you, that we get this right. Let's pray. God, this is the building blocks. These are the building blocks. This is the, this is the behind-the-scenes stuff that makes churches function and work. So on the one hand, we need to make sure that this isn't just going over our heads, so oh, that doesn't have anything to do with me. I'm not going to be a deacon or elder. God, it is imperative we know that we take this seriously. That we respect these two offices, these roles. That we respect our elders, our leaders. Follow them. Hold them accountable. It is imperative that we utilize deacons to the best of their ability to truly, in, in the name of Jesus Christ, care for the people inside and outside of our church. Lord, we need your help. We do not do this apart from your grace, your strength, and your mercy. Help us in in these next few weeks. And God, I pray that all of this, as there's so much happening, there's so much transition, moving out, moving in, doing new bylaws, people coming and people going. God, though all these changes are happening, we know that you are the one true God and you never change May our eyes be focused on you. May our hearts be aligned with you. May we do your will to your glory for our joy and the salvation of all people. In Jesus' name, amen.